My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. All right. Today on the Wonder Dome, I'm jamming with G Chang. G is a leadership coach, a creative director, a designer, and a professor who teaches at Parsons, the New School, and the Pratt Institute. Um, and she is the, also the founder and leadership director of UME, U-M-E, an inside-out brand consultancy that works with ra- radical visionaries and vanguard organizations to build a more regenerative and inclusive future, including this question of how do we design our spaces, our work, our identity to reflect our principles and perhaps even to elevate our principles so that what we aspire to can become real in the world. So our conversation today works at this intersection of of design and leadership. And G in particular is really committed to elevating principles of feminine leadership with her belief that that approach to leadership, which is instead of being about dominance or, or defeat or competition or winning, which of course, uh, essentially our entire capitalist system is built upon, this is the work of, um, of bringing people together to move hearts and minds to a place where we see business as a vehicle for the greater good, as opposed to in competition with a greater good, as opposed to one above all. So G works beautifully with a willingness to kind of stand in tough conversations, to take the heat, to say, to say what needs to be said, but to do so in a way that calls people in rather than simply calling them out. Although uh, G is probably quite capable at calling folks out too, as you'll see a really powerful force in this conversation. If you're exploring the intersections of art and leadership of design and identity and you care as you probably do as a listener of the wonder dome if you care about a future where every person has the opportunity to thrive then g is going to light you up she certainly did for me it was a really fun one so let's get settled in and hear what g has for us hi g hi andy Welcome. Thank you. Delightful. Yeah, it is. It's good to be here with you. We met, I think I'll start the conversation where we met, which was in a small breakout group for a kind of online community gathering in Zoom around adaptive leadership led by Xander Grashow. And we were in a breakout group with a few other people, including our, our mutual friend, Chelsea Simpson, who's been in the Wonder Dome a couple of times and is just a wonderful human being and a fellow professor at the new school with you. And when you introduced yourself, you said, I'm a designer and I'm a designer who's thinking about leadership and the intersections of design and leadership, or at least that's how I remember your introduction. And I kind of went like, huh, like that's a little different than most, most everyone. I'm a coach, you know, I'm a consultant, I'm a teacher, and you're like, I'm a designer. I was like, that caught my attention. So maybe we can start there. What's a what's a designer doing in leadership contexts? You know, it's funny. I felt very, I remember that moment actually. And I felt, you know, it's it's not uncommon, I suppose, but in that particular space, I thought, wow, I'm really different here. <laughs> yeah, my background is so unusual in this space. And um, I was really grateful how lovely the people were in terms of how they invited me into the space. And I've, I've learned so much and continue to learn so much from the peers that I got to meet in mm. that room. 
including you. Um, but I think that my curiosity with leadership has always been something that has been present. I, I go back and I think about kind of the early stages of my career and I was thinking about design and I didn't have the language and the words, but I was always really curious around how do how do we motivate creative people and designers? Like, what does that look like? And how do we do it in a way that mm. can be in service of what designers think and how they be and how they show up and the challenges that they have? So I am constantly curious around ideas of creative leadership and the lack thereof, quite honestly, mm. and expanding the idea of how we think of design, um, different disciplines of design, the application of design, how we think and use design as a tool. And it's been interesting to see my work and my career path change, becoming um, and being in the space of leadership has been a definite has definitely been an evolution and a bit of shedding as well. Um, I historically have been trained as a graphic designer and moved my way up, you know, becoming an art director and then a creative director and have learned over the years that my place of belonging and kind of my place of power is actually in the place of leadership and how I think about that for creatives. Mm. I've mm. shed my identity of and of being a traditional designer in terms of doing, which has been a, a sad moment in my life. My books have moved from, I actually have my old Pantone books. They have stayed, ironically, but I, I look over at my bookshelf as I speak to you. And I remember having to switch out my books, realizing that my life is changing and and my place of being is changing and mm. moving from design books and to leadership books. and. Mm set books and culture books and so it's been an evolution but that's really where that has come from is a lot of curiosity around how do we support and think about helping and thinking about frameworks of leadership for creatives out there and designers mm -hmm. out there mm -hmm. yeah i kind of heard you asking two questions that that one you just said again out loud how do we support creatives and i also heard you ask something like how do we reimagine or redefine or broaden the scope of understanding of what design is and where it can show up in our lives. Because speaking for myself, when I hear the word design, I, I do think a part of me kind of narrows that into like graphic design, right? Into like a visual medium used primarily in kind of professional context to transmit ideas or sell something or make something appealing, right? It had, it can, it can for me be both beautiful, but also have a kind of transactional quality to it. So um, I kind of want to hear you say more about the like widening design piece before we talk a bit more about what it means to help creatives grow and evolve as humans. Like what, say more about what you think is not understood about design or what you're, what you're standing for as, to, as design as a practice. Absolutely. So I often talk about it in my classes, even when I'm teaching at Parsons and at Pratt, where some students have an idea that design is an application, like the way, and they all kind of think of it as my career, it's a choice, it's a path. Um, it is a, it is a study of typography and colors and understanding uh, layouts and systems in that space. And the way that design has really evolved over time has been really using design as principles to solve problems. It's a tool. And so there are different methodologies and processes out there of how do we apply our thinking of design to, to really solve problems? I mean, we think about, I think about design all the time of, I've been thinking about the orientation of my desk and the way it's designed and does this really make sense ergonomically and also the flow of how I need things to be? Mm. I think about design in terms of how might we solve conflict within an organization? How might we redesign the way we come together? Mm. How do we design how we show up? How do we design different ways of communicating? What are different tools that we might need to help support and facilitate 
that kind of process. And so design has really expanded its way of, of, of being in the world, which I think is very exciting. And there are so many different ways of designing, and it's something that I am also constantly learning. We have different people that are designers within my consultancy at Yumi, and they have roles that I never even knew existed 10 years ago or even five years ago. We have a designer who really is focused around designing interactions of workshops, and that is where her focus is. Mm. And it could look like a graphic design piece, but it's also a lot of thinking and processing and considering the context of where people are coming from. How do they arrive? What are the ways that we can create a wayfinding? You know, how do we give them a sense of where they need to go next from one place to the other? What's the transition? How do we design what that is, Mm. both visually but auditorially? How do we do it with different ways and different creative processes. And so that's how design has really evolved. Mm, Beautiful. A few things are coming up for me as you articulate that. So let me just see if I can kind of get my hands around that. One thing I'm in touch with is, how do I want to say this? Like there are lots of spaces we could go here in the States in urban contexts and, and sort of from urban to rural and everything in between where there are human made things, places, objects, artifacts. And um, a lot of the times, as you talk about design as a way of understanding how we interact with each other, a lot of times my sense of those spaces, like a school, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a background in education, I used to do some work in schools, is like they per, they they might produce a certain feeling tone or emotion or an energy that it doesn't actually serve what that space is supposed to be. So the kind of like cinder block walls of the school, the long hallways, the metal lockers, the like loud intercom that interrupts whatever's happening inside or outside the classroom. All of those are design choices or sort of non-choices that, that become choices. And it strikes me that that's like one example of many of, if, if you were to start from like, scratch. What is the point of this place? It's a place of learning. It's a place where teachers and students and and administrators interact. What might those interactions look like? That's kind of, to me, it sounds like that's the sort of stuff you're talking about. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, that is certainly one application of it, how we think about, I mean, design to me is solving a problem. That's what it is. And so then it's what are the tools that I have in my kit to help solve this problem? And in something like that, you, I would hope, and, and we don't see it often, but if you're really thinking about designing a space that's conducive for learning, you go back and you think, what are the values that we believe about learning? What's the pedagogy that we have in this institution? Mm. How do we think about that? How do we name it? How do we, what do we want it to be experienced? Like what's the experience we want people to have mm. both for students and a range of students, right? How do students learn? And also for teachers, What are the different ways that teachers learn? How do we think about the relationship between students and teachers? And then from there, it's how do we then design a space that can really support that process for these humans that are in the space that are going to be here from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., you know, six hours, or even the way we eat food, you know, how do we commune together and gather? And, And what does that place of gathering look like? And you're right. There are a lot of spaces, schools being one, hospitals being another, mm. waiting. I have a lot of opinions about, um, <laughs> you know, just why do they choose this kind of lighting? Airports. <laughs> right. Airports. I mean, there's so many spaces. And so thinking about design application there is wonderful. Or even moments where I think about just, you know, packaging is a great, you said, you know, you think about designs of systems and you think, well, what is this packaging design evoking for me? Right. Why am I leaning towards this? I'm, I'm notorious for buying packaging and buying food based on the packaging, which my husband will attest to is not the way to buy food. <laughs> um, <laughs> a big advocate of making sure that it's good food and it speaks to me it speaks to my heart I mean, the, yeah if it's not the packaging is this good the food must be this good there's something be, powerful right? about that yeah and so um but there is this idea to me as you say that how do we really become aware and conscious of how we think about the choices that we make 
the elements that we create, the things that we bring into our spaces and our homes in our communities, and how do we think about design as an application to help mm. solve problems mm. instead of saying, well, that was crap. Well, it is crap, but why is it crap? What, mm. what were they thinking? Was it all about efficiency? Because then that starts to give you a sense of the principles that were used based on those design systems. Mm. Mm. You know, your pack- packaging example strikes me as kind of a, a playful but really important thing to look at, especially as it maybe starts to relate to this leadership question, which is to say, you know, there's the there's what you can see and there's what's inside of what you can see, right? In yeah. this case, that's pretty literal. It's like you can see the package and there's the food inside you're going to eat. And the two don't necessarily guarantee a correlate, like correlate, like the, the packaging is designed to do a thing, which is to attract you. And the food is made how the food is made, which is designed to nourish you to the extent that it does or doesn't do that is like something that you have to kind of explore and investigate. But I guess in in my ideal world, the two are are harmonized. The two the two speak to each other. The two um, amplify each other, so that someone's like, I've made really good food that's nourishing. It's a bit different than most of the processed stuff out there on the market. And I need to think about how, what I, what I put it in that reflects what I've made so that someone is attracted to it because I think it's, I believe it's good and worthy and I need it to stand out. And also like then more people are eating nourishing food as just like an example of sort of starting from first principles. What do I really care about? Why am I doing this? And, and then by extension of that, how do we, change our patterns and just do it, do it differently than the way it's always been done because that's the way it's always been done. Like that can, that small, those small questions can lead to some pretty radical culture shifts if we're willing to follow them all the way down. And that can be scary for people to do things differently. I mean, schools have always looked like this. You put the desks in rows. What do you mean design? Like kids are supposed to listen. I'm supposed to talk, right? Well, if you, if you're a teacher or a leader who's saying, no, we want to do it differently, but this is the building we've got. Unless we have the money to knock it down and build a new one, how do we start to show up in this space differently in align with our values? We're going to have to make some tough choices about that. I mean, you are talking to someone who is thinking about this all the time in terms of organizations and the dynamics of organizations. And, you know, the way that that I think about it and we talk about it in our work is how do we think about the integrity of an organization inside out? Mm. And you're right. There mm. is this idea and, and packaging is a really great example that we also see manifest in humans and in organizations, right? Where it's, we're trying to, there's a posturing that happens or we're selling. Mm. Mm. Where is that consistency happening from within? And, you know, in classrooms, it's interesting because you'll often find me in, when I come into class, I'm always rearranging furniture. I'm like, okay, we're spending the first 15 minutes rearranging furniture and and changing the way that the room is structured or the way that I, where I sit and how I sit or thinking about changing the dynamic, the power dynamics in the classroom where the assumption is I'm the authority and therefore I have all the knowledge and that's simply not true. And so it's always... I'm you will often find me sitting amongst my students mm. and also probing and saying, why do you keep looking at me when there's a question being answered? I don't understand. There's other people in the room. And sometimes you'll see me walking around the room just to help students practice changing their visual orientation in the class mm. because they get so accustomed to looking at the front of the classroom. So sometimes I sit in the back or on the side. And sometimes I can tell I, I have to be very explicit. It's not me trying to hover. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to change the orientation in the room. And it yeah. does make students uncomfortable. Yeah. But I love this idea that you're you're surfacing about this packaging uh, analogy because I do think that that is something that I think about a lot with the work that I do of how do we think about this consistency and this integrity of who we are as individuals inside out, but also as an organization, as a bigger system, Mm. because I do think that that is something that is quite challenging for a lot of people. Mm. It requires a tremendous amount of courage to say, 
I'm willing to look within and start to see where my inconsistencies might be of how I am wanting to show up in the world. Or it might be a, a, an open, vulnerable conversation of this is who I actually am and who I am inside. And I'm having a hard time knowing how to expose that to the world. And I want to, and how might I do that? And so that kind of tension to me is always something that I am thinking about where design comes in, leadership comes in, culture comes in, marketing comes in. It all becomes this nice, wonderful soup of how do we think about, again, these different tools to help support us in, in helping humans, individuals, and organizations be more consistent inside out. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. Your story of the classroom uh, makes me think of a, a a sort of almost mythical, but but uh, or legendary is maybe the right word, experience of uh, Ron Heifetz, who sort of was one of the founders of adaptive leadership. And I don't know if you've experienced this with Xander or with anyone teaching it, but but one of the moves he makes, uh, sometimes on the first day of class, is to walk in. And, you know, the class is like uh, teacher at the front, students in rows, in this case, kind of like semicircular rows, sort of stacked higher and higher in a bit of an arena style. So all of the energy is pointed down to this sort of a stage floor or arena floor, kind of coliseum floor, which we've seen, it's like an ancient design. We've seen that in, you know, many different cultures, sort of recognizing the power and potency of like, attention goes here to the center. Mm -hmm. And the person at the center is um, the wisdom keeper, the performer, the actor, the whatever it is. And so, so Professor Heifetz will come in often on the first day of class. And I can't remember what day it was for me, but on one of the early classes, he just comes in, comes right to the middle of that stage pulls over a chair, sits down in the chair, and then pushes the chair just as far to the edge of where like the center circle is that you might think of as the stage. So he's still like, everyone can still see him, but he's sort of very clearly signaling like, not going to stand where you all expect me to stand right now. And then he doesn't say a thing. <laughs> he doesn't say a thing. And this move is designed very intentionally in the same way that I hear you talking about the subtle moves you're making to provoke a response. And that response can range from confusion to anger, to disorientation, to impatience and irritation, to curiosity, like, oh, what's he doing? Like all of this stuff starts to happen that if he didn't make that move, everyone would just settle into the, their roles in the script, the kind of script we've all imbued, or at least those of us who've gone to school have imbibed of like, I sit here, I nod when the teacher says this, I write when the teacher says that. And he's just immediately breaking that script from the start to help us start to look at how do you relate to authority dynamics? And how do you relate to cultural scripting? And how does that serve you? And how does that get in the way of you actually exercising leadership? Because guess what? This is a leadership class. I don't have the answers for you. I need you to see that you can't always look to me, just like you tell your students, for the answers. Because if you do that, you are actually crippling yourself from building your own capacity to lead. So it's just like a beautiful case in point moment that anyone who's taken this class remembers some version of it. And it always leads to a lot of provocation and upset and emotion. And then the work is to repair that and learn from it in the subsequent hours and days of the class. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think that there's something that happens where we just, there are certain types of gatherings that we have where we go into autopilot, right? Weddings, baby, I don't know. You can go through a list, right? Yeah. And the spaces are like, there are spaces are very, it's like very clear what we're supposed to do. But, uh, but often, at least in my own personal experience, I feel a bit of, um, part of me feels a bit of emptiness, a bit of artifice, a, a, a longing for uh like this is a wedding this is supposed to be really fucking deep and it I, can still be because some of those structures arrived for a reason but also it can feel static it can feel performative right and yeah so absolutely and i'm a, i'm i i i think about when i got married my husband and i were very intentional about you know we're not here to perform for you this is not that's not what this is. We're not paying for a performance for us to be performing. 
entertain you. <laughs> that is not what we're here to do. And really finding ways to solicit and have people participate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our, our ceremony. And in the classroom, I love that HIFITS does that. Because I do think that there is something that happens with students and, and especially in academia where you go into autopilot and you think this is where I sit and that's where the teacher stands or, you know, and there's this kind of transaction and, you know, I will have students sit on the floor, you know, we'll sit in different places and they, and you'll mm. see them. Mm. And it's also just awakening your awareness of what is coming up within your mind because it's easy to go into a class and kind of zone out instead totally. of thinking, now I'm uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable? Well, my, my back hurts, you know, or my hip is tight or I, I, uh, you know, I, the floor is cold, like just becoming aware of your somatic senses, I mm. think is or mm. what's happening in the space of your mind of, what the hell are we doing? Even that provocation is great. What the hell are we doing? What the, what the hell are we doing, actually? Let's talk about that. That's a great question. You know, it's Wednesday morning. What are we doing? Why yeah. are we here? Oh, so uh, and good. I, just, I think that that becomes really interesting. And it uh, allows us to have a, a space to play and evoke that sense of curiosity, which we often don't have. And there's this idea that we come to class or we come to work and it's this constant, you know, I'm either taking in or I'm having something extracted from me and understanding that maybe there's a different way that we can create a dynamic that feels more regenerative. What might that be? What might that look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we facilitate that? And how do we how do we co-create that together and understand, at least for me as an instructor, that it's not all on me, nor should it be. And there are different ways that we can actually practice and learn from each other. And I love, I love teaching for that reason, because it is a place for me to actually learn. I don't teach because I think I have all this knowledge. I teach because I get to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. fun me in that way. I love going in and students teaching me something. And I think, oh, that's awesome. I'm so excited. I I learned something new from all of you. And they are delighted the fact that I I am enthusiastic or things that I didn't even know about. I'm like, what does that mean? Or tell me more or where did you learn that? And and really engaging people to be able to contribute to the learning environment. And that's the same thing that happens at work. One thing that I am so grateful for every day is I have a job and a company that I founded and I learn something new from my team every day. Mm-hmm. That is such a rare thing that I've experienced. I it's exciting that every day my my brain feels like it is stretching every day. I can't imagine. I don't know what that is like for other people, but for me it's it's you know, at, at the end of the week, that's why I'm pooped. It's not because I'm exhausted because I have done so much work. It's that I feel the stretch happening every day. Mm, you mm. call them in, there's something new that I learn, And I think, wow, that's interesting. And, you know, my computer is usually covered with sticky notes constantly of just different things that I'm learning. And that to me is what's so exciting about how we engage with each other, how we change the dynamic of authority in the space. I think yeah. that's huge. Uh, it shifts the way of how we interact and how we think about how we connect with each other and, and how we can grow. Mm. Sounds awesome. I, I want to under, underline and co-sign on the gift of arriving into a role, whatever role or context that might be, and 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 being invited and having permission, whether you give yourself that permission or the context is designed to give you that permission, to say yes to learning and to say yes to play and to say yes to discovery as opposed to simply, okay, I'm here to do what this little container I'm filling myself into tells me I'm supposed to do. And, you know, that like, that feels like a macro challenge that we might as a species, as a society have to start to figure out what does it look like at the macro level to design a society, to design professions that uh, by their design are a lot more enabling and empowering and and opening as a po- and fulfilling as opposed to this 
for some of us more than others, I'll speak for myself. Certainly if I, if I find myself suddenly kind of wedged into a shape that feels really dissonant with who I sense I am, I can do that for a period of time. But after, after some period of time, like I start to leak out of that shape. It starts to become too hold, hard to hold the posture. I'm sort of speaking yeah. metaphorically, but if I'm in a context like you've described, where where the the person who's in who's in charge, the leader, the CEO, the founder, is playing shoulder to shoulder with me around around like what I bring and what they bring, that's very enlivening. It's a very beautiful gift that I wish we could give ourselves more permission to, and also that that we had more context for. I know. And, you know, as you speak, I'm, I'm taking myself back to when I was, you know, 21 years old, my first job or even younger and throughout my career. And I, as I, there's like a younger version of me that's looking at me thinking, all right, gee, I get it. Be curious. You know, that sounds really, you have the privilege to do that where you are, where you're at in your life, or it's so novel. And, and, I guess I, I think about it's been a practice to get to where I'm at. Anyone who's known me for a long time would probably be shocked and and has have noticed that I've had I've had to practice to understand and embrace this idea of possibility mm-hmm. because I am someone who has always been in the conversations of action. What do we do next? How do we do it? What does that look like? What do we plan for? And there is a, for me, a, a an ongoing practice that I've had to learn and embrace where in order to evoke these ideas of possibility and curiosity, there is a, a letting go that needs to happen. Mm. And it's, it's tough because when you're in a place of, I need to survive, or this is what I think I need to do today, and you have a to-do list, there are certainly things that I don't want to take away from that. It's, you know, get your shit done. You got to, we need that. We need mm-hmm. doers. And, and I see that, but I, I also think that we have been incredibly off balanced or uncentered um, in that we don't evoke enough spaces to play, to think about, to wonder, right? Where's our practical wonderment? Mm-hmm. And, I think all of us as creatives, I say that kind of, you know, creatives at large, those who create, we need to be able to know how to protect that space and to be able to cultivate Mm -hmm. amongst each other. So I imagine that a big part of your wanting to be creative and also be present and and have that space of wonderment is this podcast. It's this moment you get where you're like, I can be dedicated and focused and just you know, enrich myself with someone that I may know or not know, or just, you know, we can talk about all sorts of things and how delightful that is in all different ways. Sometimes we have to find that container, you know, how do we do that? And we produce it on our own, or how do we evoke that within our own organizations that we're in or teams that we're in or families that we're in? You know, I think about different ways that our family has redesigned Christmas gifting, you know, we, uh, my father has been adamant of, I don't like this whole mass consumerism world. Why do we have more stuff? And I agree. And so as a family, we started doing secret Santas that made it really clean and crisp in terms of what we need to do. And it just minimal, it minimized the riffraff of gifting. But then there were other parameters that were put against that. Um, There is a budget that he gets to put every year, which is sometimes there's some negotiation. Some day, some some years he'll say it's $15. And I'll call him up and say, Dad, I'm getting calls from mom and my sister. And just the $15 <laughs> mark is really tough. Can we can we bring that up? He goes, 20. I said, how about 30? He goes, how about 25? Fine, Dad. 25 works this year. <laughs> um, there are themes that he will say where he'll so come this year. We're going to do gifts, $25 is the budget, but it has to be something that you can consume and eat right? It's not something that stays. And so themes begin to emerge. And I love this idea of why can't we reimagine, right? How we think, how we come together or just different, different ways that we normally don't consider. So Mm. anyone on the example, just the different ways. Can you, can can your dad come and consult with my extended family about how to do Christmas? We'll get him. (laughs) 
But what I'm in touch with, it, it didn't feel tangential to me because I, what I hear you speaking to, or or at least what I'm getting from what I'm what you're saying is this real wonderful reminder that um, what we have been using, what we have been describing as design, might even be more fundamentally just called creative choice making. On on every level of our lives, there's an opportunity to do what what we learned as a kid, as growing up in this context, or is the opportunity to do something different. And even if you can't knock down the whole school building, to go back to our earlier metaphor, right? Because that's pretty big, expensive. Even if you can't afford to buy all the fancy, you know, whiteboards and projectors and all this stuff, the packaging, even if you can't change the packaging, you can change where you stand in the room. You can rearrange the chairs. You can decide as a teacher to do something different and see what happens. You can decide as a family member to do something different and see what happens. And so that like, that availability of uh, creative design in in our everyday lives is something that, uh, that feels wonderfully empowering to me. Yeah, it's amazing. And it also, it, it allows the, it allows giving people the permission to ask why. And I think that's what the thing that it, it evokes for me when I go back in terms of even my childhood, where I'd be like, why does it have to be that way? Why is, you know, and, and, you know, I think that at least for me, there were times where I was growing up where I had teachers or, um, or instructors or mentors or family members that always be like, why are you always asking? Just do it. Like, oh, can, can drive why, people nuts. Yeah. It drives me crazy. And and I know that there's a, an age, right, where kids ask why unknowingly. It's, I think it's like two around that age. Yeah, where I've, I got, I've got some big why askers in my household. Why? Why? And, and they're profound because I'm like, well, and I would have answers and I would start to see myself go down a rabbit hole. And I would watch my, my sister, my brother-in-law being like, why are you getting so caught up? I'm like, she's asking why. And these are profound. She's like, she has no idea what she's asking. <laughs> but I, she's like, you just tell them it's because I told you so. And I was like, that does not work for me in my bones. Mm-hmm. How I was told that growing up of, I just told you so. I'm like, but that doesn't work for me. I don't mm-hmm. understand that. And then why do you have that power? What is that about? Right. And these questions that I would have and and I say this coming from a Korean family where hierarchy is so important, right? And how we talk to people and how we name. And I would always be like, why do I need to call him that? How did, how did he deserve that title? Why does he have a, a title that exemplifies some kind of level of authority um, and a sense of, you know, being uh, higher than me or have more privilege to make different decisions that I can't make? And so... I, I think that the idea of how can we redesign, it it allows permission for us to ask why. And mm-hmm. how do we embrace that? You know, why why do I always sit in the classroom like this? Why why does our our space need to be oriented this way? Why is it that every time I meet with this person, it is always the same kind of conversation? And and what would it look like if it were different? And how might I try to come into it in a different angle, right? Mm. And that be and so that kind of um playfulness almost i think is where i get really excited and um and have been able to think about bringing that those ideas and questions in to the space of learning and also the space of design and how it intersects with leadership Mm -hmm. so cool so this this provokes for me it's kind of intersect with a couple of things that we've mentioned and also talked about before we started recording, which is adaptive leadership as a sort of framework for leadership. And I'll say another word or two about that in a second and conflict. And you mentioned earlier, like we can design for conflict or not. Uh, so let me see if I can kind of turn this into a question. I guess the first thing I want to say is, is one of the most important fundamental tenets of adaptive leadership, which is arguably an evolutionary truth is that for adaptation to happen for an organism to adapt or evolve for a group of people, for a society, for whatever the kind of unit you're talking about, some things will have to be let go of. And you've talked about how you've, you know, had to shed some of your own identity to become more of who you are now. That can happen kind of, that's always happening in an organic way. We are 
even as we think we're still who we were, we've changed. You know, like every seven years, our cells have regenerated until we die. We kind of keep going through that process. So on one level, that is just happening, whether we want it to or not. But on another level, um, particularly at the level of culture and identity, can be really, um, it can really be really provoking. Why, like, why are you asking why, G? You know, just do it this way. Because, you know, on some level, that person never asked why. Or maybe they wish they had asked why. But for you to ask why now, like there's a loss there. If I if I answer your question, if I change, if I really listen to your question, I might have to change. And that's scary to me because I might have to lose something that I think is makes me who I am. And that loss may be perceived. It might not actually be a loss or it could really happen. Like I might have to give up my identity as this elder wisdom keeper because the world has changed so much that... You know, I still have wisdom, but but some answers that I have to give you just aren't, they might have been true once, but they just aren't anymore. So like at, at its best, there's this like lo- lovely, generous, evolving interplay between the kind of the, the why creative stance and the sort of traditional conservative stance that produces something new. But at its, uh, at its most heated, you end up with the kind of polarizations we see all around us right now, where it's like one of one side has to win. And the only way that happens is if the other side loses. So I wonder, you, you said before we started recording, like, I love conflict. And I like wonder if you could just yeah. talk a bit more about your love for conflict, about how you think about how design kind of at the macro environmental and the micro behavioral, like all on every level, how design intersects with what, what might be possible for productive generative conflict as opposed to the kind of like zero sum scorched landscape conflict that so many of us live in. Absolutely. I mean, to me, creativity is a series of friction, right? Mm -hmm. It's friction points that's coming together. It's tension points that you're playing with. And so to embrace conflict to me is so important in a creative process. Because otherwise, you're going to just create what you assume to be true. And that's usually can be, I mean, sometimes it could be profound, but I found quite often it's it's mundane and it's uh, it's um, obvious. And so how do we invite conflict into our work is something I think about a lot. Uh, I am a huge advocate for it. I love it. I get really <laughs> by it when I see conflict arise when I see conflict within people too I have team members who are very conflict adverse and they're like oh no there's tension over there I'm like let me give them a call I am psyched to have this conversation (laughs) and it's not because I'm excited to be combative it's that I know that by addressing the conflict which is always it's actually a relief for some people some people feel it themselves too and they just they don't want to say and to be able to say you know i just noticed that in this last conversation something triggered you right or let's talk about i I just noticed the way that um that you you know i i just i noticed that something maybe made you uncomfortable or i noticed that within myself and to be able to highlight that to be able to bring that to the forefront actually for some people i think brings some kind of relief because it just Mm -hmm. sits and it Mm -hmm. becomes toxic in itself and so for that i'm grateful that i i get excited and i feel like oh it's like i know this is probably a a kind of a gross analogy but it's like popping a pimple it's like oh i got it gave (laughs) it its relief i've relieved it you know now i can move on it's done so it's like that um and other ways I get, I, I lean into conflict because I do think that that's where there's a huge opportunity to learn. And I love it in almost like an athletic sense. You get to spar. And so there's people that mm. I can spar with and say, oh, there's tension here. We can learn from each other. Let's mm. understand why. Let's mm. understand why that's upsetting you and why am I responding this way? And let's untangle this together. And I get really, I mean, you can even tell with my voice, I get excited by it. It's like this, you know, I I become, I feel like a superhero. I can have my superhero outfit on and I get in. (laughs) Let's, let's change the world together through this adversity, you know, that we're experiencing. And I get excited by that. And, and I find it interesting because in the in this country, we're very conflict adverse. 
And I think that it's created a lot of complacency in some areas. And I think that it lacks, it, it, it also um, contributes to our lack of innovation. I mm. think that mm. we need that kind of friction to be able to lean in to build something new. Mm. And when we think about the innovations in the world that we've experienced, they always came from a place of tension or conflict, right? Something wasn't fulfilling us. There was a challenge. Why, why does it have to be that way? Why can't it be this way? And so understanding that if we can embrace it, that there is an opportunity to create something radically different that we could have not imagined if we stayed in our own silos. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a skill set. I think that I continue to develop. I think being excited by it is the first path, <laughs> the step, step forward in the path. And it's how do we not see it as a place of challenging our egos, but a place to reimagine a new way of being. And so that it gets exciting to me. I can feel that. Yeah. The, I love your metaphor of sparring. I used to do uh karate back in high school and college and sparring was always the best because the, the stakes were higher. You know, you could get hurt, but the point wasn't to hurt the other person. The point was to help each other get better. Yeah. And so it was scary, but also really enlivening and thrilling. And at the end, there was an opportunity to high five or hug or just kind of sit and stop that it wasn't an, an, an endless conflict, that there was a sort of point to it. And uh, and I'm really appreciating the way you're like embodying that energy right now to go like, hey, aha, I look what's happening between you two. I bet, I bet a part of you is really scared of that. It's uncomfortable. You'd rather it just go away. But look, if we sit with each other this way, or if we go over here, or if we go for a walk outside and change the context, there might be something we all can do as a team or that you two can learn from each other that wouldn't be possible if either, if you just let the conflict simmer and repress it until it explodes. Because I, I think that your point about conflict aversion feels true and we can see very clearly on the far other end of that polarity is like conflict. I don't know what to call it. Insanity conflict sort of uh, unending where, where of course it's scary. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to have been a police officer at the Capitol on January 6th, trying to like hold back. That's in, that's terrifying. What a terrifying spot of conflict to be in, but it's, it's, we're only in that because of the complacency, the unwillingness a hundred steps back to go, Hey, you're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Like, even if we, <laughs> I listened to this great interview with uh, Amanda Ripley, who's a conflict specialist. And she's like, look, America, like we're married to each other. We may get divorced, but like, we still have, we still have the co <laughs> we're still sharing the, the, the uh, caretaking for our kids. We got to figure this out. So, mm -hmm. so come on, let's put on the sparring gloves. If we need to, let's have some fun. Let's work it out and then see what happens. You know, I think that you're bringing up something really interesting because I I think that the mindset of when you when one goes into conflict, it's the intention that's behind it. If you're there like you said in in when you were doing karate, you understood that you're there to make each other better. That's what mm -hmm. the system is. And so to go into something realizing and believing at least your intention of I'm not going into this conflict to try to put someone down. That's not my intention, right? I'm not trying to go into this conflict. And oftentimes this even happens for me. I go into conflict trying to prove my point and I have to watch myself to say, maybe the assumptions I have weren't indeed true, or maybe they were. Maybe I'm just asking questions to validate what I'm really thinking, you know, or maybe oftentimes I might go into something to validate what I'm thinking. And then I realize, wow, gee, you're a real asshole. <laughs> making some pretty big, pretty big assumptions that you had no idea about. Mm. And, and I think we do that all the time. You know, we have these projections we're putting onto people all the time based on our own history, our narratives, our own insecurities and fears that we have, how our, our cultural context and our identity, and we project onto the people. And then we create a story that makes sense to us that may be totally and usually is very different than the entire mm. truth, right? Mm. And so the idea of going into these moments of conflict is how do we really go in with this place of inquiry so that that curiosity comes up again, right? It's, it's 
understanding, well, why, why do they behave that way? Why are they showing up that way? And when, why is it upsetting me so much? That's mm-hmm. the other thing that I think is that's really interesting is how do I, I had a teacher once say, when there's these afflictions that arise, observe the observe who the affliction is. Obviously, you'll see that. But try to see if you can hold the affliction in itself and, and observe it and, and question why does that why is that bothering me so much? Not mm-hmm. who is bothering me, but why? Mm-hmm. And and it 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 starts to take some of the the charge out of addressing it to that person and wanting to attack that other person that you feel like is causing the problem mm-hmm. and really starts to go allows one to go in and say it's upsetting me because of these reasons oh and, and then from there there's kind of further inquiry right now we're starting to do the unpeeling of the onion layers where it's why does that upset me? Well, it offends me. Well, why does it offend me? Well, and you take it back, you know, of, of what that is. And, and that to me, I think becomes exciting because then you can bring that forward. And, and when your moments of conflict of realizing you've been hurt in a certain way, or you haven't been seen or acknowledged in a certain way, there was some part of my pride that may have been dinged. And that's why I'm feeling conflict or there's an insecurity I have that I am afraid to share, right? Because it it reveals a sense of inadequacy and I'm in a position where I'm not supposed to have that apparently. And how do I move into a conversation where I'm realizing that that person triggered this part of me? And, and how do I understand maybe why that person said the things that they said or behaved the way that they behaved? And where was that coming from? And a lot of the times I've realized that we're actually coming from the same place. We're just expressing it differently. Mm, mm, mm. It is. And, and to have these aha moments of, oh my gosh, I'm such, you know, I, I assumed so many things or I didn't understand and connect the dots or I, I made these assumptions about you. And for that person to be felt heard and understood, it's so heartwarming. Yeah. And it really allows for collaboration to then come together. And so I think about that oftentimes in creative spaces with designers because designers come into work and their their creation is an expression of their identity to some extent, right? And they're putting themselves out there and to have critique and criticism, it's sometimes really difficult to not take that personally because it's coming from within if they're doing it from a place that feels honest and true. And, and I think that you know, being able to have these conversations and to hold space where it's honoring who people are and the complexity of who they are, but also, you know, being open to what other things could be possible. Could this be a starting point to something else and doing it in a way that feels tender and respectful and provocative? Um, how do you do that in a way that can solicit everyone to come together so that you're really saying we're doing this because we want to honor ourselves and and support each other to be better than who we were when we Mm. arrived Mm. Mm. you know when you put it that way it sounds so so fucking great (laughs) you know like like i i there's almost a part of me that's that's sort of resistant to that because it's like no conflict can't be that special and sweet and revealing it's it's conflict it's i am supposed to win right like we're we that's sort of another level of inheritance that i think so many of us carry and why so many of us are averse to it is because there is a pretty explicit cultural norm many like maybe even an evolutionary norm that uh in a moment of conflict there will be someone who wins and someone who loses and i do not want to be the one who loses so mm-hmm. I'm going to avoid that conflict until I don't have a choice. And then when I'm in it, I'm going to fucking win that conflict because I will not lose. But you're describing a, an alternative reality, which is like you and I may never actually agree, but if we both show up in the way that you just described, you and I will both grow and be more alive and have more access to choice and possibility and even the potential to co-create something so it's build it. It's like additive. Well, it's so additive. Much, 
Yeah. Exactly. It's not about a binary right or wrong. It's about what can we grow and manifest together? How do we evolve our sense of self? And the winning is about, did we come out of, for me, it's, did we come out of this conversation and evolve our sense of being? Mm -hmm. That is the win. So it's a different axis. And, and to me, that kind of way of leadership, the way of being is, is crucial. I think that that is how we will continue to sustain as, as humans, because this idea of like trying to one up each other, you know, this idea it's, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. That's where we have wars coming in. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. And there is another way of you actually can coexist and not completely align, but still have respect for each other and each other's identities. And that I think is a model that we don't see very often. And I think about that a lot, actually, with my work and our practice. And I, I talk about it in terms of feminine and masculine leadership. And and that's how I see those too. And I don't think that one is better than the other, but I certainly think that we can have more doses of feminine leadership, which mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. where you can hold complexity. It's about additive. It's about growing. It's about being in concert with one another and knowing that there is a win there. That is a very different kind of win, but a win that I think is worth examining and seeing mm -hmm. if it's worthy and a value mm -hmm. to and your communities that you're in. Mm -hmm. It's a, I really, that really deeply resonates with me and, and you don't have a ton of time left. So I think I want to say one more thought that came up for me that feels important and then, and then give you the last word, but what I'm in touch with, as you describe that possible, that possibility for conflict and leadership, which in, includes an integration of, of these sort of masculine and feminine energies and is additive and generative versus the kind of conflict most of us are scared of and as a result averse to and as a result it keeps blowing up in our faces is um a conflict that is by design designed to be subtractive but never actually gets to where it thinks it's going like literally if we could go to the worst case scenario of one one culture one people destroying another people like a genocide or a war this sort of scorched earth by all means possible like even if literally every one of the people in the battle is dead, their relatives are still alive. Your relatives are still alive. There are some people who have, have married each other across those cultures. The, the conflict lives on in the people who are still alive. The people who by their own hand had to, to enact that violence on people they claimed are not their brother and sister, but actually like if we, if we tracked the DNA. And if we track the cross-cultural pollination, we would see that there's no clear line that divides this group from that group. There are certainly centers of gravity that are pretty different, but at, at the place where those two groups meet, it's a very porous intermingled line. And the kind of scorched earth conflict doesn't ever win. Even if you win, you lose because you yeah. still, the pain is still there. The fear is still there. The the next thing that could get you is still out there. And I just feel like that, I my wish as you describe your version of conflict is like, yes, can we help more people see not only is there another way, but it it's, might be the difference maker between us making it as a society, a species and us not. Absolutely. I mean, I think about it, you know, the way that you're speaking about it, it's collaboration over competition. And understanding that there is a win there, that when you can collaborate, that you actually will receive so much greater than what you could possibly imagine. And there's something that's happened in our culture where we have used competition as a driver, as a way to grow and excel. And I think that there are areas where we do need to be competitive. I think that that is an important, healthy aspect. But this... Uh, this is kind of being off balance and not understanding how to truly collaborate. And that's why I think conflict is an interesting topic because we go into it with a competitive mindset, but if you go into it with a collaborative mindset, it'd be a very different dynamic at play, mm. right? Mm. So different. And, 
And it's the same thing that happens in our works. It happens in our family structures. It happens in our churches. We see it in government and society. We're always thinking about competition. I think about being in New York City and it's so interesting living there. And last year I had the, um, the privilege of, uh, of being in and living in Spain for four months and, and just seeing the difference of armor, right? Like who's competitive versus collaborative and how New Yorkers are just, it's there's a competitive feeling that we have constantly. And, and yet deep down inside, I actually believe that truly we all really want to be collaborative. Mm. We all want mm. to be each other. You know, we're, we're a species, right? We're the human loves community. That's mm. what we do. And so that's why we create families, you know, um, and live in these different kinds of community systems. And we saw it so much during COVID, which was so interesting. Like our memory of isolation, it really, I mean, we think about how much it, it pained us and it created so much trauma. And yet we have not fully learned the importance of collaboration. Like what more lesson do we need more of this? So, um, that, that, I, I am a big advocate of let's find ways of how we can understand that we can hold space that's complex and be with each other and realize that there is a lot of wisdom in how we can think about collaboration and lean into conflict or any kind of tension and realize that tension is just another form and a place to reimagine new possibilities. Mm, beautiful. Maybe my last question is a bit more on the level of like tactics or advice or wisdom. But if you if you had to offer a sort of design principle or a move or um, a choice that someone who's on the brink of conflict, either at the interpersonal one to one level or at the group organizational level, like what's something that they could do differently or ask differently or try differently that would maybe include physical environmental redesign, but might also just be kind of at the level of redesigning how they think about the issue and show up differently. What's some? Well, tactically, I think go in and start asking questions, you know, not in a way to provoke, but really sincerely. I think, I think oftentimes um, when I see moments of conflict, it's people going in and including myself when I think about me in the past when I have not done it well, I'm going in with an opinion. I'm coming in really strong. And so rather than coming in that way, it's actually coming from a place of inquiry. You know, have the other person start first, ask them questions of how they're feeling and what's going on. And that will help inform, at least for me, it's helped inform me of oh, I'm starting to reorganize my judgments or some of them are kind of embarrassed to even admit to myself. <laughs> I'm tucking them away. And so that helps that reorientation. I think that's one. I think another one was the, um, what I had said earlier of when there is a conflict, start to see before you go into it, what is it about that situation that's evoking within you that's upsetting mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. What is that about? And try to see if you can, you know, even the practices of the five whys, ask why five times and see what you can, you know, uncover. I think that's important. And then I think really going in, um, right now I'm in a big place of thinking about being present. And so rather than going in and thinking that I need to go and fix something or mm -hmm. do something, mm -hmm. have a place of being present with that person and just be with them. You know, just see what comes up and don't and, and catch yourself where you're like, oh, I'm I'm realizing I'm going into a place of, of action. Right. Instead of just being present, observe and watch and even come out of it saying, you know what, we're not going to even come up with a solution at this moment. This was something that we had an energy exchange with and and bear witness of each other and honor that and then say, let's come back to it in a day or two. And, and I know for some people who like resolution immediately, that is a tough, tough challenge, <laughs> but it's always interesting to see what might evolve from that conversation the day after or later that evening that is helpful, that can actually inform different ways of how you might want to re-engage with that person or come yeah. up with a solution. So let it sit. So I always say, like, come into it, have that conversation, walk away, let it sit. And I think that way with design, too, by the way, all designers, I always like, and whether you're a strategist and thinking of design that way, or you're thinking about graphic design, I see people get really deep in and it's do the work, step away, walk away, 
you know, give yourself the afternoon even, and then come back to it fresh. And so let it simmer on its own in mm-hmm. your subconscious, because mm-hmm. there will be, I believe, innate wisdom that will start to bubble up that will come from that conversation that you just had. So give nice. your give your body and your mind a bit of space. Mm, love that. So there's a real trust and faith that time, the, the engagement and staying with the engagement even when it's not yet resolved, allows for possibilities that if you're trying to get in there and win or fix or help or even the well-meaning, like, oh, I'm going to get this all resolved for everyone so everyone's happy again. Like, even that is can can be counterproductive. So thanks for Absolutely. sharing that. And I think that sometimes when we, when we get too fixated on trying to fix something or have a solution, it's not sustainable because there isn't there isn't that sense of list, really listening and understanding the underlying causes. And so then we start to see band-aid solutions that happen. And we see that all the time in our world. And so I think sitting with that, understanding that the wisdom is within the bulk of you, believing that that could be true, I think is one way of addressing conflict when we mm. go into mm. Gee, thank you. This was, uh, this was super fun. And I'm particularly appreciating... Uh, that the you, however many years ago, two or three years ago, said, I'm going to go do this adaptive leadership thing. And just like, I'm going to go somewhere different. Like that was a design choice. And I'm appreciating how you embodying that, how you brought that today, particularly the energy of this, the superhero spar in you around conflict. Just you're modeling a lot of beautiful ways of being for, for myself and for anyone who might hear this. So thank you for that. I am a practice, a practitioner, just like all of us. So I have my flaws and I try every day, but um, I'm grateful for having this time with you. And this is also just a wonderful reminder for me of ways that I can continue this practice too. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Yeah. For folks who want to learn more about your design work or what you're doing out in the world, what's the what's the best place for folks listening? Oh, find us at Yumi. It's spelled U-M-E design.co so that's u-e-d-e-s-i-g-n dot c-o great well thanks again g thanks everyone for listening this has been a real treat thanks for tuning into the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me andy cahill with support from kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from john nolan at middle mountain studios the theme song was written and performed by todd marston you can find the wonder dome wherever pods are casted If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.